The fourth edition of the Four Corners Podcast starts right now. This is Carolina Basketball. Black holding high, goes to Darty. Darty in the double team, gives it back to Black with 20 seconds left to play. Goes back to Michael Jordan, jumper from out on the left, good! Michigan out of timeout. And Weber, front court, Carolina thought he'd travel with it. Weber, front court, Carolina with foul. He takes a timeout, they're out of timeout. Technical foul, technical foul on Michigan. Now gets it away to Donald Williams, down the side to Stackhouse. Stackhouse streaking in on Park, reverse duck is good, and he gets fouled by Park. Oh my goodness, what a dunk! Brown gets it into Williams. Here comes Williams' front court. Williams on the drive. Gets it back out to him. Long outside shot. Short rebounded. May! It's over! Carolina has won the national championship! Felton ready on his second attempt. That one is no good. They battle for it. Loose ball. Recovered for him. And he scores! 17 seconds left. 79-72, and how about them Tar Heels? They are the national champion. Matthews off the mark, and this year the confetti is going to fall for North Carolina. They're not going to be denied this time. From HeelToughBlog.com, this is the Four Corners Podcast, featuring your host, Josh Marlowe. I am now joined by longtime Carolina basketball writer, Art Chansky. Art, good morning, man. How's it going? Good, Josh. How are you down there? Everything good? Yeah, everything's going good, man. Um, I, I, I do like to ask all my guests, especially ones I haven't had on in a long time. You know, the last year and a half or so has been really it's been really crazy with COVID. So how, how have you handled COVID and hope everyone's been safe down your way? Yeah, thanks for asking. I think um, I've been fortunate. Um, I got my two vaccines and uh i've been careful in terms of uh, how to live in my life uh trying to not stay inside all the time or stay home all the time so fortunately i have my own business and it it requires me to to go to a radio station and do some other things so so i've been I've been uh, engaging and uh, traveling a little bit, but, but very carefully. And so I hope we're on the other side of it. Now, how about you? You, you know, people do okay? Yeah, man. We uh, we've been we've been saying we we've been staying safe as best we can, but also still trying to live life a little bit. Let's dive right in and let's talk about uh, let's talk about the Tar Heels. The you know the cliche thing to ask you is what was your reaction or your thought, but. I want to know what was your reaction or your thought when you first heard the news that Roy Williams was in fact retiring. Well, uh, it was obviously it was a shock. I mean, anytime a coach of Roy Williams' stature and his longevity, um, you know, I went through the same thing with Dean Smith, and you know it's happening at some point. Uh, but it is it's a little bit shocking. I, I was not really surprised because I felt that Roy was coming to the end of his career, but I was more sad for. Uh, I was happy for him because if it was something that he felt he wanted to do at this point in his life, then it was good uh, for him. But I'm sad for UNC basketball, and and I am sad for Roy in the sense that um, he didn't go out the way he wanted to in terms of his last few seasons. 
you know, like you said, that you, you had a pretty close seat when Dean Smith was going through his retirement. Did you get the sense during this season that this could have been his last season coaching the Tar Heels? I didn't. I, I really thought, uh, because it was such a weird season, uh, I really thought that he'd one more year that where he could uh, coach, uh, where he could um, walk through the tunnel with fans in the stands um, and all the COVID adjustments gone so I was kind of hoping that he would that he would do it one more year but honestly I, I thought the, the signals were there uh, I think Roy um, wants to have some active uh, years of his life uh, with his family his grandchildren uh, his great obviously love for, the, for golf and he's won 903 games, and he was the fastest to 900, so has won a lot of championships. And he's, if you, you know, if you know where Roy came from, his story is as incredible as anybody, uh, in, you know, in the profession. So, right. Uh, I wish that he'd stay one more year, but you could see... You could see the problems that were occurring uh, with the team that he felt that he couldn't be effectively uh, solved anymore. And I'm not sure whether I'm not sure whether the game is the games and the kids have just changed a lot, or, or whether Rory, in fact, uh, couldn't wasn't as effective as he was in the past. But it didn't matter. The bottom line came down to that he he wanted to turn it over the program to somebody else and it was time for someone else to take over. And that's what Dean, Dean said in 1997. And that, that was, I mean, I remember that day uh, forever because that was, he was the only basketball coach that I knew uh, from UNC all those years. And when he left, it was, it was kind of shocking. But uh, Roy, Caroline was very fortunate to have two Hall of Fame coaches uh in my lifetime and in most people's uh, lifetimes. Uh, so what more can you ask for? You know, I'm a big New England Patriots fan because uh, I grew up in New England and you know, people talk about, you know, how bad the Patriots were last year. And I say, yeah, they were pretty bad, but boy, I had a great 20 years before yeah. that. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> um. As I mentioned, you're you're a Carolina basketball historian, so you've been around for a lot of the big moments. One of the big moments was when Roy Williams came back in 2003 after saying no in 2000. What do you remember about the days leading up of the announcement of him being hired as the new head basketball coach at North Carolina? I was hoping, uh, and I, I emphasize hoping, I was hoping that he would take the job. Because in 2000, when he decided to stay at Kansas, I, I thought he would stay at Kansas forever. You know, Dean Smith was a Kansan who came to North Carolina and decided to stay at North Carolina forever. And I thought Roy felt uh, that he could be a North Carolinian who, who would stay at Kansas. And he was a tremendous success in Kansas and extremely popular, one of the most, if not the most recognizable figure in the state of Kansas during those times. But things changed uh, here and at KU between 2000 and 2003. And so he ended up uh, open to it. Uh, and then I think the, the big thing was he couldn't say no to Dean Smith twice. Mm -hmm. You know, Coach Smith said, 
we, we want you to come back in 2000 and in 2003, he said, we need you to come back. And, and it's a long, uh, it's a lot of detail of, about it, uh, about how Bill Guthridge was the interim coach and how Roy really, uh, wanted Bill Guthridge to either stay forever or not stay as long as he did because Roy got into a situation where he missed the window to coach his son Scott for a season in Carolina, who was a walk-on. He also uh, had promised Kirk Heinrich, Drew Gooden, and Nick Collison uh, that he would stay and coach them for as long as they were at, at, at Kansas. So there, there were good reasons why he, he stayed in 2000. Um, so what happened... At Kansas uh, and at Carolina, of course, uh, with Matt Darty and not being successful, and then Kansas. In my in my estimation, Kansas played the biggest part in it because once Roy said that he was staying at Kansas in 2000, he had that famous quote where he said, "Next time I have a press conference like this, I'll either be dying or retiring." Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and so the Kansas people said, well, we got him forever. And they did some really foolish things. The first thing they did, Kansas was great in basketball at that time, but they weren't really good uh, in the rest of the athletic department. So the first thing Kansas did was find Bob Frederick, who was his good friend, and more importantly than that, the man who gave Roy a job in 1988 when nobody knew who he was. I mean, he was like the fifth person they asked to take that job. They were coming off a national championship with Larry Brown, but they were also heading for an NCAA probation. And Dean Smith got him that job for sure. And so Bob Frederick took the chance. So then they fired Bob Frederick, which is a tremendous insult uh, to Roy. And his good buddy was Terry Allen, the football coach. And Roy wasn't against coaches getting fired if they deserve to get fired, but they fired Terry Allen in the middle of the season, which is really embarrassing to him and then they, they named this athletic director named Al Bowl mm-hmm. uh, and they didn't really consult Roy about that and Al Bowl came in and started doing some things that uh, directly affected the basketball program so within three years I actually more, faster than that within two years the job that Roy wanted to keep forever in Kansas wasn't the same job and so when uh, rumors started here that, that Matt Darty wasn't going to make it. I think he was, uh, he became open to coming back. But again, I was only, I was hoping that because it was a tough decision to leave his players back then, even though he hadn't committed. Those kind of Goodison, Gooden and Carlson were done and he hadn't really committed to anybody else to stay as long. But it was still, really loves his players and it was hard for him to leave. And he agonized over for about a week the first time, and it looked like he was doing it again in 2003. But he finally made the decision, and, and you know, you know, Josh, uh, Carolina uh, has had ups and downs in athletics over the last 20 years. But think about how fortunate they are that Roy Williams came back in 2003 mm-hmm. when he didn't have to, and then think of how fortunate they were that Mac Brown took the job in football in 2019. You can ask, where would those two programs be if Roy Williams didn't come back in 2003 and Mac Brown wasn't, wasn't the guy that they hired to follow Larry Fedora? And uh, the answers would be probably long, even in basketball, which was a, a blue blood program for years, long, every 
every big time program after John Wooden retired, after Adolf Ruck's regime in in, in uh, Kentucky and so forth, they had these long these long droughts, maybe uh, as long as ten years before they got back into national prominence, right. and that probably would have happened with Carolina in basketball. Uh, and certainly they were headed that way in football until Matt Brown came back and has done an amazing job uh, rebuilding what he what he had done the first time. You mentioned that he won 903 games, the fastest to ever win 900 at the college level. Uh, he's won three national championships, five Final Fours um, with Carolina, won the ACC regular season nine times, and won the ACC tournament three times. What will Roy, what will Roy Williams' legacy be at North Carolina, and then the college game overall? Well, you'll have to say he's definitely one of the dozen or so greatest coaches of all time. And it just depends on the metrics you use to judge that. But like, you know, we said fastest to 900, uh, one of only a few uh, coaches to win more than two NCAA championships, uh, known as a tremendous recruiter, uh, won 400-plus games at two Blue Bloods, uh, a popular, respected guy, really really well liked um, and so I, I think he'll be remembered and then the, the, the in the micro of it people will look at his record since he's been back at Carolina since 2003 or four um, he has uh, <clears throat> won uh, he's won three national championships compared to Duke's two mm-hmm. right he has uh, consistently uh, beaten Duke for the regular season championship uh, he's, he's really, even overall, Krzyzewski still has a, has a better record, but since in the, in the 18 years, and not even in the 18, because as we discussed, the last few have, haven't been that well, but overall, uh, he, he has won the Duke Carolina rivalry in terms of what both programs have accomplished. And I think around here, people who kind of zero in on, on that particular aspect, We'll see that he did very well to hold his own against Duke when Duke, uh, there was a period of time, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s when uh, Duke was dominating Carolina, winning something like 15 out of 17 games. And we'll talk about it. You asked me a question about the rivalry. We can talk about that later on. But that's the only thing that really could destroy uh, a rivalry like Duke Carolina if one, if one side starts to dominate. Uh, so much that uh, that the team that's dominating finds other rivals. Like you know, over the years, the Duke. <clears throat> remember when the Duke Maryland rivalry got to be very hot, and then the Carolina Virginia rivalry got very hot when Duke was down and Ralph Sampson, Ralph Sampson was in Virginia. So the only thing that can really destroy a rivalry uh, like Duke Carolina is, is if, if it's a long period of time when both teams aren't very good. Well, one of the teams aren't very good, and the, and the rivalry is not, it is not as fierce. 18 years as the head coach at North Carolina, a, de- a decade of being the assistant under Dean Smith. So you had a lot of up-close interaction to Roy Williams. Do you have any favorite stories or memories you can tell us about the former Tar Heel head coach? Well, I knew you were going to ask that, and I, uh, I was thinking – you know, Roy is, uh, what you see is what you get. And so what I've seen of Roy Williams is what everybody has seen. Yeah, his crying after tough losses, mm-hmm. dancing in the locker rooms. Uh, he's one of the funniest guys ever. He's got, he's got a tremendous personality. You can see why that he 
uh, as an unknown assistant, uh, James Jordan and the Jordan family really took to him. Uh, and Roy built James Jordan, his wife Dolores, uh, uh, or they built Roy a uh, uh, stove. What do you call it? I'm from the north, so I don't remember. You know, you put uh, the, a wood stove, I guess it's called. Oh, okay. Uh, so Roy, so Roy, he was only making $2,700 a year in those days as an assistant coach to keep his house warm. That's the kind of relationship he had. But I was thinking, I will tell you this. <laughs> This is a this is a sort of unrelated basketball, but but when he was when he was making twenty seven hundred dollars a year, uh, Eddie Fogler, who was still one of my best friends in the world and, and a, a partner when I, we started Four Corners Restaurant back in nineteen eighty in Chapel Hill, uh, Eddie, Roy, and uh, and I and our wives uh, went to Farrington House for dinner. Uh, we had promised our wives we were going to do that, and uh, so we, we went out there. And it turned out uh, that that dinner coincided uh, with Marilyn was on TV in one of the big ACC games of the season. I think it was, you know, around 1980, 81, something like that. But but we went, we sat down at the restaurant and we, uh, we started talking so much about, you know, that game and kind of making our wives feel bad that uh, that they made us miss the game. And Eddie looked at me, and I looked at Roy, and I said, okay. I said, I'm leaving. So I got up, and I went. Uh, I didn't live very far away, so I drove, picked up my portable TV, brought it back to the restaurant, <laughs> put it on the table. <laughs> and we all watched this Maryland game uh, at dinner that night. And, uh, I, you know, the wives were happy because we weren't complaining about missing the game. But that's, that's the kind of... Stuff that we did back then when, when every game seemed to be so important, you know. So now we move on. we got a new era of Carolina basketball being ushered in with the hire of Hubert Davis. We know that he's not going to have any problem winning over the media, but after his introductory press conference where you saw a level of emotion that we saw for 18 years under Roy Williams, did North Carolina get the right guy? Yeah, great question, and you have to qualify that by saying when you consider UNC's alternatives, uh, UB was definitely the best choice. Uh, first of all, I was there at the press conference, and when Roy said, um, I've talked to the chancellor and I've talked to the athletic director, and I told him that I want to be very involved in, in the direction of this program. Mm-hmm. As soon as he said that, I said to myself, well, let's stay in-house, you know, yeah. because up to that point, Bubba Cunningham's not the Carolina guy. He's done, he's done a great job. He's a wonderful athletic director. He's been here for about been there for about ten years. But he had the opportunity uh, to go make a career defining or try to make a career defining hire. But Roy's comment, and then you know the chancellor, uh, you go, Bubba Cunningham. If the chancellor and the best and the Hall of Fame basketball coach wanted it one way, he would have a very hard time uh, going against that. And when you look at the alternatives, uh, you can't go get a Brad Stevens uh, in the middle of the basketball season. Carolina, one of the reasons Rory resigned right when he did and as quickly as he did, right on April 1st, because they wanted to, he made a decision, they wanted to get that on the books, and then they wanted to go find his replacement right away so they could 
put that program back together with the transfer portal and, and all the all the fluid nature of the program. So you can't you can't get an NBA coach worth of salt um, <laughs> at that time. And then the other question is any other sitting head coach. I mean, North Carolina is you know, still one of the top five programs in the country and one of the two blue bloods. But any other sitting coach who you would consider, uh, he would want to know, who do we have coming back? Who am I going to coach next year? And no one could answer that question the first week in April because of the Walker-Kessler thing, right. because of uh, Baycott turns out testing the NBA. We, we, we still don't know a situation with, with other transfers. So no one could answer that. So really, it came down to Hubert Davis and Wes Miller, in my mind, those are the only two guys that would take the job, uh, not sight unseen, because Wes Miller was still very close to the program, too, but they knew what the situation was and they could handle it. So uh, under the circumstances, I think they, they made the best choice. But you have to remember, Carolina went from the Dean Smith era to the Roy Williams era, and who does that? So if anybody at UNC was thinking that it was going to be an easy uh, succession plan here, that's just not the case. Yeah, no, there's definitely going to be some challenges that Hubert Davis is going to have to take on, and he's already doing that, trying to fill out his roster. College athletics are changing with, you got name, name, image, and likeness. You've got the ever-growing transfer portal. What challenges will Hubert Davis encounter in his first season as the new head coach? Well, it's like anything else. You know, they say that uh, head coaches make suggestions uh, assistant coaches make suggestions, head coaches make decisions. Mm-hmm. So that's what he'll be doing. First of all, running an overall program. Uh, assistant coaches have specific duties uh, in recruiting certain uh, certain high school players that they're chasing. They have certain responsibilities at practice, the stations during the uh, during the drills, you know, and they have certain office duties, but when you're the head coach, you, you oversee it all. And then you add in there the radio and TV requirements, the the media, the alumni stuff. So uh, all of that will be uh, outside of what Yuba David is used to. And, you know, he also has, I think, some tough, tough choices to make about the best style of play for personnel. Now, I know he said in the press conference that he's, is married to the foundation that he learned under Dean Smith and Roy Williams. Uh, but you can't, first of all, you can't play two low post guys uh, if you don't have any outside shooting because they, that team becomes the easiest team to defense. If you, to defend, if you're doing that. So I don't think there'll be major transitions, but I think Hubert, uh, he's going to, he's going to change his staff up. We we already know, uh, some of the changes that are going to happen. And he's going to bring in some people probably who are familiar with a different style of play in case they have to move away more to a four round or open floor game, uh, to accommodate the personnel. He's going to have to make those decisions too. Uh, so the bottom line is that uh, if there was no major transition at all, uh, it would be a lot, a lot easier job and probably one that Roy would have stayed around for, you know, maybe at least one more year. Mm-hmm. So I think Hubert's, Hubert's got a tough job, but he's, he's beloved in the Carolina community. Uh, and you have to, at the end of the day, though, with Carolina, if you're the head coach, you have to win games. Yep. Uh, that's the standard. That's the standard that's been set for sixty years, and 
Hubert knows that. Um, talking with Art Chansky, longtime Carolina basketball historian. You covered Hubert Davis when he played for Dean Smith back in the late age and the early 90s. He was a part of two teams that won the ACC regular season and went to the Final Four back in 1991, ultimately lost to Roy Williams in Kansas and Indianapolis that year. Can you give Tar Heel fans like me that are that are not old enough to uh, have seen him play what kind of player Hubert Davis was in Carolina Blue? Well, I, we all know the story about Hubert uh, became a uh, Carolina fan when he was four years old. His uncle Walter signed same, signed with the Tar Heels, so he got used to uh, Chapel Hill and Carolina basketball from a very young age. In 1976, when Dean Smith coached the Olympic team in Montreal to the gold medal, and Carolina had four players on that team, uh, Hubert and his father, Hubert Sr., went, went, and they all they drove from their home in Virginia to Montreal, and then they drove back after the gold medal, and it was Hubert Sr. and, and his wife, Bobby, and uh, um, uh, Phil Ford and Uncle Walter in the backseat with young Hubert sitting on it, sitting between them or on their laps on that ride back. So mm. that was the w- one memory he had. So it was always a question. There was no question that, that he wanted to go to Carolina. And then, you know, the story about Dean Smith said he wasn't good enough, wasn't fast enough, wasn't quick enough, and he should go play at George Mason where he could play, you know, and improve. Uh, and he said, I just want a chance, Coach. And uh, and so Coach Smith gave him a chance, and I'll, I'll never forget running it to Bill Guthridge the first day of practice in 1988, October. Back then, it always was October 15th, and I ran it to Bill Guthrie. I said, Coach, uh, how'd practice go? Any surprises? And he looked at me and he said, Hubert's a lot better than we thought. <laughs> and I went, and I said, after one day, he said, yeah, he's, he's a lot better than we thought. So I don't know what they missed when they watched him in high school. But he, you know, he was lost as a freshman, like most guys are. I remember the, the classic 1989 ACC championship game in Atlanta between Duke and Carolina, which to this day is still the most intense sporting event I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Hubert winning the game a couple of times, and, you know, guys like Lebo had to move him around, make sure he was in the right spot, because it was a total freak out. I mean, that game was in the old Omni, and it was, it was packed to the gills, and it was when, you know, Mike Krzyzewski was trying to take games uh, mantle away from them, and, and Carolina's feeling like this young whippersnapper was, was was trying to move their coach out to pasture. That's how intense it was. But then, yeah, you know, he became a good player as a sophomore. He became a very good reserve as a junior uh, when they went to the Final Four in 1991, and he was the leading scorer in that game with 25 points. And then. I think I sent you uh, in the email my picture that we took for the Carolina Court magazine yes. uh, that we did uh, where we put a note in the Daily Tar Heel that we were going to take a picture of Hubert in the pit and show up if he wanted to be in the picture. So hundreds of students showed up and we had these signs with the number three printed on him because he was becoming Carolina's all-time three-point shooter. And you saw the picture, the hundreds of kids in the background and you'd be standing in front of it. So that's how popular he was. And I'll just tell you one last thing. I've never seen anything like this before because I've covered Duke Carolina games since I was with the Daily Tar Heel uh, when I was in school. And the, the, the students at Duke were always crazy uh, and very and very nasty uh, mm-hmm. to the opposing team. But in Hubert's last regular season game at Duke, it was Christian late in the senior day. It was the Duke team that was on the way to winning back-to-back championships. Hubert lit him up with 35 points. 
he had six of eight, he had six of eight threes, and the crazies went crazy over Hubert. Wow! And I'd never seen anything like that. They were cheering for Hubert because he was put on a shooting show that day like you've never seen. And it was one. And Duke won the game, but it was one of the most fun games to watch and to see the Cameron Crazies appreciating a player from another team. And that shows you not only was Hubert a great player and fun to watch, but they knew he was a good person. You know they. They do their homework over there. They, they, there's nothing about Hubert Davis that they could that they could uh, ridicule in a sign or a cheer or anything like that. They left him, and Hubert put on a show that that they really appreciated. You uh, you mentioned that the standard here at North Carolina is you got to win games, and that's not going to change for Hubert Davis. He has to win. This might be difficult to to answer because we just don't know, but. What does he have to do to deem this hire successful? Is there a certain amount of wins he's got to reach, certain amount of Final Fours, national titles, ACC titles, or is that just too hard, too complex to answer on April 14th? No, it's not, really, because the standard's been set. Every coaching tenure ends. I mean, people thought that Dean Smith tenure would never end, but it ended, and Roy's has ended. But what's left is the standard, the 65-year standard has been set. Mm-hmm. And you've got to win games. Now you can win the press conference, which you obviously did, and and you know you can have a kind of a honeymoon year like Roy Williams had in his first year at Kansas when they, they were on probation and couldn't go to the tournament. Right. But over the course of time, you've got to win games, and I think the standard of Carolina, at the very least, you're expected to make the NCAA tournament every year, and in most years, make a make a significant and a deep run in that tournament. So whoever the coach is. Uh, the honeymoon's going to wear out pretty quickly, and you've got to win games. I call it the Bart Starr syndrome. Remember Bart Starr was the all-pro quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, yep. one of their greatest players ever. And then he made the mistake of becoming the coach of the Green Bay Packers, and they weren't very good when he was the coach. So I think Bart Starr is now remembered as a great player, but not a very good coach. And so with Hubert, uh, he knows that. He knows that as much as anybody. Uh, the standards been set since Frank McGuire's team in 1957 when 32-0 and won the national championship and uh, then the Dean Smith era and Bill Guthrie had a great three years and uh, Roy came back to rescue the program. He rescued it and the standard is, is still in place. Uh, you've got to win games. There's no honeymoon. There might be a honeymoon period but after two or three years if you're not if you're not uh, meeting that standard, then um, yeah, eventually they're going to make another change. Not only are you a Carolina basketball historian, your insight on the rivalry with Duke is no other. I've read both of your books about the rivalry, Blue Blood and Blue Blood 2. Coach K has now outlasted both Dean Smith and Roy Williams, and that in and of itself is rather remarkable. How does another coaching change affect the greatest rivalry in college basketball? Uh, not at all, with one if. Let me just go back and tell you that both schools have now had six basketball coaches during the modern history of the rivalry. Duke had Harold Bradley, Vic Bubis, mm-hmm. Bucky Waters, Neil McGahee, Bill Foster, and Coach K. Carolina had Frank McGuire, Dean Smith, Bill Guthridge, Matt Daugherty, Roy Williams, and now Hubert Davis. So as long as both teams, it doesn't really matter who's coaching or playing, uh, as long as both teams are competitive, then the rivalry is going to remain. Uh, 
you know, look at look at what's happened over those those sixty those sixty years. You know, one lost records of games won are so close. The total points scored are so close. Mm-hmm. The teams have both won an equal number of ACC and regular season championships. Now Duke has won more tournament championships. Krzyzewski right. thinks that cutting down a net at the end of a three day tournament is more important than winning a regular season, which <laughs> Dean Smith always considered. Much more, much harder to do is mm-hmm. to win it over the regular season. But you know they've they've been so close, and and the only years, like I mentioned before, the only years when the rivalry was in jeopardy was the early 1970s uh, when Tim Bulldog left and Bucky Waters took over, and right. the early 1980s when Coach K was just getting rolling, and that was when the the rivalry was in jeopardy for Duke, and then Foster had built a top ten team in the in the late 70s, and Coach K, Coach K got it rolling in the mid. In the mid 1980s, and the rivalry's been been there ever since. So, uh, I, honestly, I think there's great coaches, great players, now, but I think the rivalry itself, the hyphenated rivalry, is bigger than any of the individual pieces. And as long as the teams are both good, uh, the rivalry will exist. And Jay Billis and the crew will continue talking about how it always delivers and so forth. And, and, it, and it really does. But if there's a coach who doesn't maintain the standard of, of to that program and maintain the standard of the rivalry, I mean, they're going to be the they're going to be the um, the collateral damage. Uh, but the rivalry is also going to suffer, and and the rivalry is is it's a, we're, we're so lucky. I mean, you, you know, if people uh, when I travel around and see people from different parts of the country, they always ask me, what's it like to be in Cameron for the Carolina Duke game? What's it like to be in the Dean Dome? And I said, you just have to come sometime. It's just like nothing else. And, uh, you know, Mike Krzyzewski has always said about uh, the cheese and wine crowd, the old Sam Cassell line from Florida State. Yep. <laughs> he comes in every every time he comes into Carolina, he goes, where's the wine and cheese crowd? Where's the cheese and wine crowd? I, I never saw that. You know, because <laughs> you never see it when Duke's the opponent. Yep. And... The idea that that rivalry has, uh, and, and too coincidentally, Josh, I mean, the rivalry was really, it, 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 uh, it went at the same time, it took off from a regional rivalry to a national rivalry at the same time that national TV college basketball. Like in 1994, ESPN2 started, yep. and they did it, when they did it, they, they took the first game, which was always on ESPN, the first game, and they, they put it on ESPN2. So if you didn't subscribe to the Deuce, you had to, to subscribe to ESPN2 to get that game. And it became a game since 1986. Every game has been on national TV. And, you know, Duke Carolina was uh, America's team through the, the 70s and early 80s. And then Duke became America's team through the mid 80s and, and most of the, you know, most of the 90s. So if you look at, the rivalry it went from a small tobacco road backyard drawl to a pretty good regional rivalry to exploding uh, to a national rivalry, which is all all the uh, fault and credit of national TV. So, and the problem is that if you don't sustain that, then there are other rivalries are always going to try and take your place. But because of the school proximity. Eight miles, the opposites attract, the private school versus the public school, you know, the large campus versus the small campus, the in-state student body versus the out-of-state student body. All of those dynamics make it 
just uh, probably the most unique rivalry you couldn't have created if you were sit down with uh, with a piece of paper and, uh, and a pen. You couldn't create the situation that Duke and Carolina have, and we're so lucky to have it in our neighborhood right. that uh, that we shouldn't take we shouldn't take it for granted. Art, I, I do want to thank you for coming on and talking about Carolina basketball with me. With me. Before I let you go, uh, I mentioned you've written a couple books on Carolina basketball. You're telling me that you, you do some work for WCHL and Chapel Hill and ChapelBorough.com. Tell Tar Heel fans where they can find all your great coverage of Carolina basketball and some and overall Carolina athletics. Well, uh, you know, I've written 10 books. Uh, the two on Duke Carolina rivalry, Blue Blood and Blue Blood 2. The, the most fun book that I ever wrote was the one that came out in 2016. It's called Game Changers. It's the story not only of Carolina basketball and, and the integration of, of basketball mm-hmm. with the Dean and uh, Charlie Scott, but it's also the story about civil rights in Chapel Hill and the, and the kiss of history in the 50s and 60s. And back then, Chapel Hill wasn't a very liberal town. The university wasn't a very liberal university. And you just have to admire the tremendous courage of a 17-year-old kid named Charlie Scott and a 35-year-old coach named Dean Smith came from different parts of the world. uh, And neither of them had established themselves as great players or great coaches, but they had the courage to, to integrate the Carolina basketball program and it's a story that everybody who's interested in Carolina basketball should read Game Changers, not because I wrote it, but because we have to have appreciation mm. for where this basketball program came from. You know, Roy Williams didn't wake up one morning and say, my goodness, I'm the coach of this great basketball program. He knows it better than anybody that it was hard work and courage by Charlie Scott, Dean Smith, and all the players who came after Charlie Scott to make Carolina an integrated you know, America's team. And so it's called Game Changers. And it's really it's really worth the read if, if you care about the history of Carolina basketball. But I'm also on chapelbar.com, which is the website for WCHL, AM and FM Radio in Chapel Hill. And, uh, you know, I'm on Facebook somewhere. I have my <laughs> I have a Facebook page. I, I put some of my stuff on Facebook. And guys like you... I'm nice enough to pick up some of the stuff and push it out. It's it's a great uh, era of of uh, uh, collaborative journalism now, since there are so many different ways to get your word out there, and uh, I hope it continues. Well, Art, I want to thank you once again for coming on and talk a little Carolina basketball. Hopefully, we'll do it again down the road sometime. Thanks, Josh. Anytime, just give me a shout. Yes, sir. You have a good day. Take care. And there you go, guys. There is longtime Carolina basketball historian Art Chansky here on the Four Corners podcast. He didn't tell you guys, but he told me we were talking before we got on air. He actually is the owner of Four Corners Restaurant in Chapel Hill. He actually started that back with uh, former assistant head coach Eddie Fogler back in the 80s. And his publication is actually called Four Corners Publication. It's kind of neat that it's all tying in right here on the Four Corners podcast. Before I let you go, get you guys over to the website, HeelToughBlog.com, where we've had you covered during this crazy Carolina basketball offseason. This week, Carolina missed out on Walker Kessler. You can go back and read about that. They've also offered another per- person in the transfer portal uh, Creighton or from Creighton, Christian Bishop. You can read about him. And there's other transfer portal pr- uh, prospects that Carolina will reach out and come as well. Of all the coverage of Carolina basketball on the website, HeelToughBlog.com. And on the football side of things, Anthony is getting you ready for the spring game. That'll be next Saturday in Chapel Hill. We'll actually be in person for that. And uh, so we'll go get, get over there to the website, HeelToughBlog.com, for all your great 
Carolina football coverage as well. Lastly, we want to encourage you guys to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. We've done a really great job downloading the first three episodes of the Four Corners podcast. I've all reached over 100 downloads. We thank you guys for all that great support. So continue to rate, review. But we want you guys to subscribe. Though You get every podcast right there in your podcast library. Well, with that, I do want to thank our chance once again for coming on to talk a little Carolina basketball. I want to thank you guys for listening. And as always, go Tar Heels. <laughs>